Hi, I'm David Perkins. And I'm Shari Tishman. Today, we have a focus on slow looking. And I'm interviewing Shari. We'll switch it up next episode and she'll interview me. Today, I'm curious to ask Shari, what is this thing slow looking? And how does it fit into the big picture of thinking and learning? And how can we foster it in ourselves and in others? Now, Shari, I know you've thought long and hard about those questions, and you even have a book, and it's called Slow Looking. And <laughs> I've read the book, and I like the book very much. So just to get us oriented, how about a starter example, perhaps a personal experience to illustrate the basic idea? Sure, happy to. Um, let's see. Well, I think I'm going to pull on an experience from quite a while ago. It was one of the things that really got me started really thinking about slow looking. Many years ago, I was working on a project at Project Zero that involved observing middle school classrooms in a, a big New York City public middle school. And I was down in New York and I was going to the classroom to do some observations. And I went into the sixth grade classroom. I, was, I took the elevator up and, you know, like sixth grade classrooms are, it was bustling and loud and kids all over the place, probably 35, 40 kids, maybe. And the teacher came up to me and she said, you know, today what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at a painting by the French artist Henri Matisse. And we're going to spend the first 20 minutes or half an hour just looking closely at the painting. So I sat down in my chair, got ready to observe, and I smiled, but I thought, really? You know, with this bustling group of sixth graders, you think they're going to be quiet and just slowly look at this painting for half an hour? But she started in and, and she was good. She was really good. She sh showed the image. She gave, you know, she asked students to be quiet for a few seconds just to look. And then she started asking them, name one thing that you see, name something else that you see, something else that you see. And students started just noticing so much. And at first there was a little bit of a quiet, but then hands were shooting up in the air and students just had so much to say. And she kept asking, what more can we see? What more can we see? And I realized after about 15 or 20 minutes that the students had just delved so deeply into that painting. You know, they had noticed all kinds of things about how it was designed and the different images in it and why there was an empty chair and what this vase of flowers might be like and so on and so forth. And I was really struck by how deeply they could go by just simply slowing down to look. So that really stayed with me, and I wanted to figure out what was going on. Hey, thanks, Sharon. That's a great starter example. And it, it gives us a kind of a launching pad to dig into what slow looking is all about. So look, what's the general idea? Well, you know, if you asked me 10 years ago, I would have said three paragraphs, but now I'll try to say it in a sentence. Um, I think the general idea is just taking the time to look beyond a first glance. It's really about intention and about looking again. It's not necessarily about tempo. It doesn't mean things move very slowly. That sixth grade class, there was lots of energy and activity in there. But the idea of sort of going back and looking again and looking more deeply. And, you know, I know I used uh, an example of an artwork, but you can look slowly at all kinds of things. And I've seen people do all kinds of really deep thinking by looking at everyday objects or things from nature, or even looking at portions of text in a sort of object-like way. You really can get a lot out of looking slowly at all kinds of things. Yeah. And the, I think the last thing I want to say here is that I'm using the language of the visual, obviously saying slow looking, but 
but I mean the concept to include observation through all the senses. So we can listen slowly, we can sense slowly and so forth. Well, thank you. And I'm hearing something pretty important. It sounds like slow looking is not just slowing down. It's actually a bundle of different ways of slowing down. Does that sound right? What are some of the techniques? Yeah, no, I, I like I like how you put that. Um, and I think you're right. You just it's sort of slowing down with a little bit of structure, and there are different kinds of structures. I'll pick three that you can find in a lot of different contexts. One is something so familiar that we don't even think of it as a strategy, which is just making a long list of everything you see, sort of an inventory. And that's what that teacher was doing, saying, what do you see? Say something else, something else. And it doesn't matter if it was a sort of jumbled up list of different kinds of things. The idea is just make a list. And maybe you set yourself a, a number, notice 10 things, notice five things, go back and look for five more things. Then another kind of strategy that in a sense balances that out is looking for kinds of things. So you could look for colors or shapes or lines or puzzles or things that are surprising, Dave. I think that's something you and I have had fun doing. And then another kind of strategy area is looking from different perspectives. You know, you can look from different physical perspectives, but you can also look from different sort of attitudinal or conceptual perspectives. You can imagine how other people might see things. So those would be three broad kinds of categories I think are useful. Well, that sounds pretty good to me. And I guess it bumps a question up for me. It kind of sounds as though slow looking with a couple of tricks in your toolkit is pretty easy. But I'm having the feeling as it's not necessarily so easy. What do you think about that? You know, I think you're right. And I, that's a great question. You know, I think it's hard in, in two kinds of ways. One, you know, very obviously is finding the time. Slow looking takes time. It's all about taking time. Now, maybe it only takes 20 minutes rather than one minute, or maybe it takes five years rather than two months. But finding that time and carving out the space to engage in slow looking is challenging. Life is really busy. You know, if you think of educational context, curricula are really stuffed coverage, coverage, coverage. So just finding time in the sort of busy flow of life is a real challenge. And then I think another kind of hard is more sort of psychological. It's taming the impulse to rush to judgment or to rush to closure or to think that you've got it and you can just move on to sort of dismiss things. It's very natural that our minds sort of want to quickly move on to some sort of action or dismissal or closure. And slow looking means taming that impulse. Well, that's really interesting. Uh, what I'm hearing is kind of encouraging, actually. It not that slow looking is hard to carry out. It's like it's hard to get yourself to carry out, to slip into that mode. Even so, frankly, why bother? Why should I spend 20 minutes on a Matisse? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I I have an answer. <laughs> I mean, I I think that it's slow looking, even though it might take a little push to get yourself to do it, it's simple, actionable behavior. It's accessible to people across the age spectrums. I've seen five-year-olds do it, and certainly adults can do it. It applies across contexts, and it has a really high cognitive and motivational payoff. In other words, there's a lot of bang for the buck. We saw those kids spend 15 minutes looking at Matisse, and I'm willing to bet that if they had spent two hours listening to an art history lecture, they would have gotten less out of it. Ooh, a dangerous example there. 
I know. <laughs> well, all right. In a way, I'm, of course, asking a unfair question because, you know, I love slow looking too, and I easily appreciate the value. But let's zoom back a little bit. In our podcast so far, we've mostly talked about thinking and mostly about familiar themes around thinking and thinking skills and so forth. Themes like metacognition, curiosity, and so on. Slow looking, that seems off in a different direction. So I'd love to hear more about how slow looking fits into the big picture we're trying to sketch here. How does slow looking relate to thinking? Hmm. Yeah, that's a, a really important question. And, you know, when I started thinking about thinking as an educator and as a researcher, there was a lot of focus on things like good reasoning and constructing thoughtful explanations or well-supported interpretations, maybe being very thoughtful about how to act and all of these things or how to solve a problem, that kind of thing. And all those things are really important forms of thinking. But if you think of a continuum with sort of those closure-related forms of thinking on one end, solving the problem, making the decision, forming the explanation, and you think of a continuum at the very other end is what you could call discernment, noticing details, seeing more, seeing complexity, not so much, you know, taming that impulse to, to rush to judgment, but just seeing what more can you can see. And I think slow looking is a way of trying to call attention to the discernment end of the continuum, recognizing that we slide up and down that continuum all the time. But Dave, you know, I, I know I, I think that this is sometimes overlooked, but I also know that this is something that you've thought a lot about and that you've written about in your book, The Intelligent Eye, which, by the way, has a title that is so much about looking and thinking, you know, and I've really been inspired by your work. So I'm wondering what you're thinking, what connections between thinking and close looking you're thinking about right now. Yeah, well, that takes me back. I guess one thing that stands out for me when we think about slow looking and slow thinking is there's a kind of an illusion of completeness. In the case of looking, it's this sense that when we look at something for a few seconds, we see what there is to see. And we know from all sorts of sources that <laughs> we miss a lot when we just look at something for a few seconds. But, you know, thinking kind of works the same way. We face some decision, maybe it's not too big, or some judgment about something, and we think about it for a minute or two, and we think, hey, I've got it. I've nailed it. That's it. I have a view of it. But in neither case is that usually so. There's this kind of illusion of completeness. So part of the point of slow looking and slow thinking is to get past that illusion of completeness. That doesn't mean there's always something on the other side of it, but there's usually something on the other side of it. And there's something else that stands out for me about the sketch you've given of slow looking, and that's the importance of having maybe a simple toolkit, some strategies, some moves that you can make. Because when you're slowing down, you need something to slow down to. What are you doing during that slower period? So just a few tricks, like uh, taking an inventory of what seems to be in front of your eyes. Or if we're talking about thinking, taking an inventory, for instance, about what different reasons pro and con might be. So there's a couple of things that slow looking and slow thinking seem to have very much in common. And I might add a lot of other things that we have to do where we might 
easily slide toward a conclusion, they kind of have that same character. Slowing down with a simple toolkit, that's worth a lot. I so agree. I so agree. And I think, you know, it's a really powerful way of learning. And we don't usually talk about that in terms of learning. But I do think that that if you think about learning and how slow looking relates to learning, I mean, you can say a lot of things, but one thing that you can say is that it really helps us to appreciate and navigate by using tricks like you just mentioned, complexity. You know, the, the world is a pretty complex place. Now, we were talking about a painting. Of course, paintings can be complex, but think about something really you know, sort of simple, like a shoe or something like that. If you spend time looking really closely at it, some different kinds of complexity will emerge. For example, one thing you'll notice if you do say, as you were suggesting, an inventory, there's lots of different parts and they relate to each other in different ways. There's shoelaces and there's the covering and the sole and so forth. There's all kinds of stuff. Also, if you look long enough, you'll start to think about it from different perspectives. Maybe you imagine what it looks like from far away. Maybe you imagine who's wearing that shoe. Maybe you think about how it looked to the people who made it. And if you look long enough, you'll start to be aware of yourself as an observer. And you'll think about the ideas and conceptions and even biases that you bring to the experience of looking. I think that those different ways of exploring complexities are really kinds of learning that slow looking yields. Just to connect a little bit to something that we talked about in our very first podcast, I also think slow looking connects to curiosity and intrinsic engagement because once you start looking like those kids in the classroom, they get curiouser and curiouser. Well, I love the shoe example. It's a beautiful case of how there's so much in our everyday world that we take for granted look past, not seeing its complexity and its richness. It does remind me, though, that the shoe example suggests looking at something and sort of nailing just what's there. That sounds very objective. We often think of good thinking that way also as trying to be objective and unbiased and see the reality, and that's important. But it's not all there is to thinking by any means. Is this true of slow looking also? What is slow looking up to besides getting at the reality of what's in front of us? Dave, it's such a good question. And I'm going to be honest with you. You know, this is something I continue to puzzle about. I'll just share some thoughts. I mean, I think you're right that there's something fundamentally objective, object making in the move of slow looking. You stand back, you sort of temporarily set yourself aside, your biases, your whatever, and you try to look at something as an object, objectively. Now, that's aspirational, not actual. I mean, first of all, we can't see the world as it really is in all of its detail all the time. I mean, pure objectivity is probably an impossibility. But we can try for it, and that move is really important. And sort of taking ourselves out of it is really important, making that move. And I think that how we be objective or how we practice objectivity, the standards for it and the criteria for it really vary across goals and contexts. You know, for example, if you go out and take a walk in your neighborhood and you take a walk that you take every single day, but you've decided that you're going to look slow, you're going to try to see your neighborhood through fresh eyes, you're going to try to look slowly at things. 
you'll be kind of trying to be objective, but it won't be objectivity the way that scientists looking for patterns in data, say, are trying to taste the self out of it. So I think the objectivity question is complicated and important. That sure makes sense to me. And in fact, it reminds me again of art because, hey, Shari, you and I are, are both art fans and we all know that a good deal of art is not meant to have a single reading. This is the underlying story and that's it. In fact, it's deliberately and often playfully off in different directions, depending on just how you engage it. But that doesn't mean slow looking doesn't help you recognize that richness. The art example also brings me around to the question of emotions. We often think of thinking as a dry affair, like Spock. Now, that's certainly a misconception about thinking, but what's the slow-looking story there? You know, I think like other forms of thinking and learning, emotion is woven into slow-looking in a, in a variety of ways, it, probably in very similar ways to other forms of thinking and learning. I mean, just to name uh, a few, one is that emotions can be both a consequence and a motivation for slow looking. And curiosity would be a great example, thinking back to our earlier podcast. You look at something, you weren't really curious about it at first, but then you spend a little time slow looking about it and you start to feel curious. So that's kind of a consequence of it. But then the curiosity motivates you to look further. So it's, you know, a little bit of a feedback loop and emotions, curiosity, surprise, interests all play a role there. Also, and it's, yeah, I think we have to name it, is that emotions can be an impediment to slow looking. If you're very angry, that can keep you from seeing things. If you're feeling guilty about something, you might look at it in a biased way. Emotions are often impediments to seeing clearly. We, we know that about life. But at the same time, emotions can be a really powerful lens to see more. People will often talk about looking with compassion will allow you to see more of humans and human nature and human behavior than looking without compassion or looking with love. So emotions can play a variety of roles. And I think they play these kinds of roles in thinking more broadly. Well, it's really clarifying to reach into the question of objectivity on the one hand and emotions on the other. Let's try one more reach, maybe a slightly further reach. Sometimes people seem to equate slow looking with mindfulness. What do you think about that? Is that a fair connection or what? You know, I'm glad you asked because people ask me that question a lot. And first, I want to say that there are different ways of thinking about mindfulness, and now's not the time to go into the different versions. But, but these days, people often talk about mindfulness as a, as a kind of a character virtue. You know, if you can learn to be more mindful in your life, it will contribute to well-being. It will make you sort of a better person. Relationships will be better. You'll be more centered in yourself and so forth. And all of that is great. And slow looking could help build mindful-like character, but I like to think of it not so much as a character virtue, but as, you know, what you might call an epistemic virtue or a learning virtue, a way of engaging with the world that's inherently about learning. Why draw that distinction? Well, one reason I want to draw it is because I want to keep the bar very low for what counts as slow looking, because I want to accommodate those all kinds of varieties of it across temperament, across age. There's a group of kindergarten educators in Greece, for some reason, who were involved at Project Zero, and they do slow looking with their kindergartners. 
And if you look, you know, those kindergartners aren't being mindful. They're running around the playground with magnifying glasses and little phones trying to snap pictures. And they're trying to look slowly at their world. It's not mindful, but it's powerful. So I think there's a lot of overlap between mindfulness and slow looking, but I don't think they're the same thing. Oh, beautiful example of both the kids. I love that. Not so mindful, but hey, slow looking. <laughs> so now I'm feeling I have the basic story here. I'm ready to walk out of the room and be a slow looker for the rest of my life, right? Well, <laughs> maybe not. Maybe not. What is slow looking 101? If we want to get ourselves to do this kind of thing more often, and maybe we want to teach others to do this kind of thing more often, what's the game? What are the basics? What is slow looking 101? Mm. Oh, I, I like I like how you call it 101, and I wish we could teach this throughout the grades. But here are some basics that I, that I, I think of, and they're so, so basic. The first is the most basic. Set expectations and timeframes. As you mentioned earlier, we need a little bit of structure. If I just say, go out and slow look at the world, it's hard to know what to do. But if I say, take 10 minutes to look at this small haiku poem, or take 15 minutes to look at a shoe, or take a week to look at a fish skeleton. And I give you sort of expectations and timeframes, that really helps. It holds you. And people really need that. Another that we've touched on, and you mentioned some about it, and I did too, is use really simple observation strategies like making a list, taking an inventory, looking for different kinds of things, using categories as a strategy. Another is to, I like to think of it as dwelling in description. Take time describing what things look like. That might be verbal. You might be telling somebody about it. You might be making a list for yourself. You might be making a drawing. You might use your other senses, but dwell in description. It's one way to slow down. Another, we talked about this, is explore different perspectives, You know, whether they're physical perspectives or perspectives of other people, but just look at different ways of seeing things. And then lastly, and I, I think I touched on this when I was talking about complexity, the complexity of our own selves and what we bring to the experience is that ask yourself what you're bringing to the experience of looking. What lenses are you looking at something from? Because that will help you to understand sort of more about the experience. So that might be a lot, but that's my 101, maybe 105. Sounds pretty good to me. I'm interested in your mention of younger learners, like kindergarten and so on. If I recall right, you've done some research about slow looking and young people. Love to hear a little bit about that. What have you learned? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm really fortunate to be involved in a project at Project Zero called Out of Eden Learn, which is some of our listeners might have heard of, and it's been around for a long time. And it's basically an online intercultural exchange program where students from around the world, from kindergarten through high school, sort of follows these short little curricula that engage them with the world and with one another. And slow looking is one of the one of the several sort of foundational ideas. So students do quite a bit of slow looking. Just to pick one example, one thing they do in early in one curriculum is they take a neighborhood walk, sort of like I was mentioning before, and they try to see their neighborhood with fresh eyes, and maybe they write about it or take pictures, and then they share online with their colleagues. 
So we have this incredible data set of, of slow walks through neighborhoods that students have done from kindergarten through 12th grade in rural areas and urban areas and private schools and public schools in different countries, 60 different countries, tremendous data set. And when you look at what kids say about this, because part of that particular activity involves reflecting on it, there's incredible consistency about what kids say from age 10 up, say, across cultures and contexts. And they say that they really like slow look and they didn't think they would, but they really do. They really like it because of a few things. It helps them notice detail. Kids seem to get really excited about that. They get excited about discovering perspectives. They sort of all talk about that. Kids talk a lot about the excitement of discovering that there's more to the world that meets the eye at first glance. You know, they said, I never knew when I look at this sewer grate that has weeds growing over it that you see the way the weeds are growing in this really complicated fashion. You know, they just get really excited about seeing things they've never seen before. Honestly, students talk a lot about finding beauty when they slow down, whether it's beauty in nature or beauty in everyday objects. Students do often mention nature a lot. Nature and slow looking are, are good companions. And then lastly, and this speaks, I think, to the mindfulness question that you asked earlier, and it's really moving for me. Students often talk about how looking slowly at things that they used to not look very closely at makes them feel grateful and appreciative about their world and their lives. And this is sort of across very different contexts. So I think these research, research findings are, are powerful. Well, it's impressive and encouraging. Thank you very much for that. Well, I'm thinking we probably ought to make our way towards some kind of a conclusion. Let me just try to do a roundup of some headlines. So one thing I'm hearing is that slowing down is a good idea for looking and for lots of things like thinking, crafts, and so on. Why? Because, well, this life's busyness and there's that illusion of completeness leading us often to think that we've seen it all or thought it all or all that's important, and we're kind of missing out. That's one headline for me. And another headline is that slowing down with looking, thinking, or anything works better if it's supported by a toolkit of strategies, even simple ones, three or four tricks that can really help a lot. And another thing that stands out for me, this is a high-value proposition. It yields gains in understanding, and it yields gains in engagement. Both of those are pretty important. Dave, thank you. That was a great roundup. I love your concise and accurate and very insightful way of capturing the big ideas. That sounds good. Well, Shari, it's great to talk about slow looking. One of my favorite ideas. What's next? Well, well, thank you for the great interview questions. They were a lot of fun to answer. And you know what's up next. You're up next because I'm going to interview you in our next episode. Well, I look forward to the conversation. And to our audience, please stay tuned. As always, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts or on the Project Zero website, or look for us on Twitter at ThinkabilityPZ. Hey, Shari, see you next time. See you next time, Dave.